hey y'all, you tired of church teaching that just ain't right? It's kind of contrary to all God's word and such. Well, you need to know how to refute it. This here channel will help you out. We got answers. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where old Danny boy seeks to equip you with some tools that you can go out and fight that good fight and really develop that there Christian faith. Now get after it, y'all. <laughs> oh, that introduction never gets old, never gets old. I hope you enjoy just the comical, just the hillbilliness of that introduction by a buddy of mine. Uh, today, wel welcome to this C4C Apologetics episode. Today we're looking into the second uh, category of apologetic methods. Uh, we looked already at experiential apologetics. Now we're looking at evidential apologetics. But first, I got to warn you. My daughter, who is 14 years old, had made us some coffee this morning. She normally makes us some coffee, but... Oh, man. Uh, she misunderstood using a teaspoon and instead used a quarter cup of coffee grounds. And not only just regular coffee grounds, but espresso coffee grounds. So... The coffee that we're drinking right now, and I like to drink it straight, I like to drink it black, looks like if you were to close your eyes and picture the blackness, then get a black Sharpie and Sharpie color the blackness with the black Sharpie. And so that's pretty much what this coffee looks like. And so it's it's kind of strong. I'm still going to drink it and everything. So if I get a little wiry before the end of this episode, you'll know why. It's not just I'm going a little loopy. Uh, well, maybe I am because of the espresso coffee and everything that's in this. So, but it's still good. It's still good. That Cafe Bustello, you got to like it. Anyways, back to the episode. Today, like I said, we're talking about evidential apologetics. And so what exactly is evidential apologetics? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at scripture and does scripture really employ this method? Because the things that we're talking about, the things that we want to do, we want to be able to see illustrations and application from the from the Bible. Okay, so if we find it within scripture, what are some evidences within nature that we can talk about? And then finally, all this would be moot and, and just vain and and uh, you know purposeless if we don't find ways to practically apply it to our lives in the day. And so we're going to look at how to actually apply evidential apologetics to our life. So what is evidential apologetics? Simply put, it's merely just using evidence. Whether you use evidence within the world, within the earth, uh, the universe, uh, within abstract thoughts, uh, mathematics, or you use evidence from the miraculous and try to attest to the fact of them being legitimate uh, within scripture, you're providing evidence for reasons why you believe what you believe. Uh, for instance, you could use what's commonly called the Kalam cosmological argument, which pretty much goes like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And so we could identify and we can just postulate that that cause would be a God, that it's outside of the time space, and so it's timeless, it's spaceless, and it's outside of the material universe, so it's immaterial. And so creating the entire universe, it would also have to be intelligent and then personal for having the desire to do it. And so when you think of a timeless, immaterial, spaceless, personal, intelligent being, you think of God. 
And so you can look at things like that with the Kalam cosmological argument. You could also use evidential apologetics to refute the different theories on why Jesus' tomb was empty. The greatest miracle recorded in all scripture is the miracle of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that that tomb is empty and that's attested to the fact about 2,000 years ago because they have yet to ever provide a body or discredit that theory. And so what is evidential apologetics? Simply put, it's using evidences, whether from scripture or outside of scripture in the natural world, to show the rationale for God's existence. So does the Bible say anything about evidential apologetics? Well, certainly it does, and you're probably already thinking about two passages that I'm going to be bringing up here right now. First, we'll read in Psalm chapter 19, ver <clears throat> sorry, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. You see... Psalm 19, the psalmist declares the fact that creation bears witness to the majesty, the might, the intelligence, and the beauty of this creator. And it explains the fact that this isn't just in one particular location. This isn't the Middle East or in Africa where I believe the Garden of Eden was. This was a fact that is throughout the entire earth. When the psalmist is writing this about two, 3,000 years ago, that he's identifying that fact that throughout the entire earth, Everybody has the ability to see the majesty, beauty, and intelligence of God through the creative order just by looking at the heavens, the sky, the stars, and the firmament, and the expanse. You see, that's one area. The second scripture that we're going to look at is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, where Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by things that are made. Even as eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves wise, they became fools. You see, Paul speaks right here again of the cosmological argument that everything that begins to exist has a cause, and that the universe began to exist, and that cause is God. And again, pairing that with Psalm 19, the entire world, all the people have this knowledge, have this general revelation of God's existence, or at least a being's existence. Not atheism, but some sort of theism or deism aspect. You see, there is no excuse for denying the necessity of a creator. When you look at a painting, and you've heard this said before, when you look at a painting, you don't imagine that that painting just randomly, spontaneously came to be. You assume that there was a painter that had not only the ability to paint it, but had the desire and the imagination and a thought process to think about what he was going to paint and then paint it. The same thing if you see a beautiful flower garden. You know that the flowers didn't just appear in a particular order, but rather you have a planter, a gardener, that decided to put certain flowers in a certain arrangement to go ahead and see this certain design, such, such as the case in Disney World where you have flowers that are in the shape of Mickey Mouse. Those didn't just appear or evolve. Those were purposefully planned and placed uh, to have that design. 
The same thing with an automobile. You don't assume that the parts just got there just by happenstance, but no, you assume and you realize the fact of there was an automobile manufacturer that put them together. And so why would we discredit God's existence when we're looking at paintings, when we're looking at flower beds, we're looking at automobiles? Why would we discredit God when we see the creative world in order? You see, Paul says right here that people that are ignorant of this, and Peter actually says they're willingly ignorant, specifically of the flood and the original creation, that they are professing themselves wise, they become fools. And we clearly see this when we're looking at the different secular naturalistic ideas on how the universe began to exist, such as the Big Bang and the point of singularity where everything was uh, condensed in a fine uh, point in the universe that's smaller than the freckle on your skin, and that something happened to cause it to expand at this accelerated rate and create everything that we have. The all, all other uh, silliness is the fact of evolution, that everything we have comes from a single cell that was struck by lightning billions of years ago, and all of a sudden that lightning bolt smashing with that cell created all the life we speak of today. And so we can go into a lot more details of that, but it's just illustrative of the fact that people are believing these nonsensical whimsical, whimsical tales that have no scientific backing to them to discredit God. And so they're professing themselves wise, they're becoming fools. And so for evidential apologetics, you got Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1 that speak of using the universe and the creation to point to God. But Acts chapter 1 talks about scripture in a historical event to actually show evidence for God. That coffee still is pretty strong. Acts chapter 1 verse 3, and we can look at many other passages that talk about this, but Acts chapter 1 verse number 3 will suffice because Luke says that, G, that to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. And so talking about Jesus and his physical resurrection, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them for 40 days. It wasn't a one-time deal or event, one-time visible appearance. It was for 40 days. And not only just being seen, but speaking, eating food. Matter of fact, Paul goes out when he's writing to the Corinthians that he was seen of 500 people at one time. And so the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is a documented fact. And you can look through the historicity of Jesus Christ and see what the early church and the early believers taught and believed, whether you're looking in uh, certain sayings and quotes or the hymnology and things like that. But also the fact that the empty tomb has not been dismissed or refuted is a great attestation of the fact of Jesus actually physically rising from the dead. Think about it. And we'll talk about this in a future episode, but if Jesus Christ was buried in a tomb in Jerusalem, and his ministry was such an uproar to the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, how easy would it have been to discredit the, the fairy tales of Jesus' resurrection had they simply provided the body of Jesus at that time? But yet that never happened. It's not documented, and we have no reason to believe that ever happened. All the different theories are refuted uh, clearly and exhaustively. So the empty tomb, and here in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where it talks about Jesus' physical resurrection, is an evidence to the validity of not just God, but that Jesus is who he actually said he is. 
And so there's at least three passages in Scripture that use evidential apologetic methods that we can use in our day-to-day life as well. Now, when we're looking at evidences in nature, there's a few different things, and I'm not going to be very exhaustive as far as these different areas, but I encourage you to check them out yourselves and just get a little more information if, if you're not familiar with some of these. Some of these, maybe you're not. Some of these, maybe you are. But for instance, fractals. Fractals are just self-repeating patterns. And these typically are found within nature, but they're also found within mathematics, such as the fact of Mandelbrot set, which I talked about before. So if you're unsure, fractals are seen in snowflakes. Uh, They're found in fern leaves. They're found in tree branches, in river deltas, and many other things. Fractals are even found in broccoli, to where you take a look at the broccoli, and when you look at it under a microscope, even at the smallest scale, it's the same pattern as if you zoom out. It's a same pattern that no matter how much you zoom out or zoom in, is self-repeating. This is information that is coded into the actual organisms itself. What about our DNA? The DNA that contains all the information that make you and me us. Everything from our color, our features, physical features, our traits, even our personality and whether somebody is funny or kind of dull like I am, they're all attributed to the information that is found within the DNA strands. Also, it contains the directions, the programming guide on how, when, and where cellular proteins are made. You see, this information, there's no rational justification or explanation on how this information can evolve through natural means. If we all came from stardust, as Lawrence Krauss promotes, there is no logical way for stardust to encode the greatest computer program software in the universe. You see, if everything began with a single point smaller than the freckle on our skin or the pimple on our skin or whatever you want to say and it was all just starting from materials okay it wasn't there was nothing supernatural it was all naturalistic there is nothing immaterial or spirit it was all done from material there's no way that the metaphysical that the abstract that the immaterial could come or even information be coded within Take Microsoft Word, for example. If you open up Microsoft Word on your computer, just leave it up for five years. Don't touch it. I imagine words will never appear on that document unless you or somebody starts typing on them. The same thing with putting an empty jar on your desk. Leaving an empty jar on your desk is never going to spontaneously create something inside of it. A pencil is not just going to randomly appear. Life only comes from life. And so when you're looking at these things, whether it's uh, the law of biogenesis or spontaneous generation, you look at the fact of there's plenty of evidence within nature. And when you look at the information in our DNA, the information in the world's universe's greatest computer programming software has to come from an intelligence, a thought, a purpose. Let's talk about animals. Let's talk about the caterpillar. You know, there's a lot of different variations of caterpillars out there in the world. Some are cute, some are ugly, some are nasty, some are are tasty, uh, some are not tasty. Don't ask me how I know. But did you know that during the chrysalis process, when the caterpillar eats and eats and eats, and then he goes into the cocoon, there's a certain part while he's in the cocoon that if you were to cut it open, that 
what would be called caterpillar soup or liquid will pour out. You see, during that chrysalis process, the caterpillar digests itself and the juices end up turning into what's called imaginal cells, which are coded to rebuild itself and turn into a butterfly. So think about this. A caterpillar enters its sleeping bag and through however long it takes for it to turn into a butterfly, the caterpillar completely dissolves into liquid and then reforms into a butterfly. That is information that is built into the cells, the DNA of that insect. Fantastic information that I do not understand how evolutionist or naturalistic explanations can account for. What about the cyclic process within nature? You see, we go ahead and we humans, we need to breathe in oxygen. Now, what do we breathe out? We breathe out carbon dioxide. Well, where do we get our oxygen? We get our oxygen from the plants, right? But where do plants get the, get, uh, the chemicals to make oxygen? Well, they get it from carbon dioxide. You see, we breathe in oxygen. We breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide and put out oxygen. There's this perfect cyclic process between our breathing uh, system and the plants and how they emit the oxygen we need for life-sustaining information, life-sustaining uh, means. So not only talking about that or the hydrologic water cycle, we could talk about the anthropic principle in the Goldilocks zone. The anthropic principle is more often referred to as the fine-tuning argument, that the earth is such a way that it allows for four seasons, that it's positioned a perfect distance away uh, for habitable planet. Well, that's more talking about the Goldilocks zone. And so when you look at the anthropic principle with the fine-tuning, that if you were to picture a soundboard and all the dials set to a precise location area, whether you look at the fact of the magnetic field, you look at the moon, you look at the axis and everything else, they say if one of those dials was turned just even slightly, then life on Earth would not be sustainable. And then the Goldilocks zone, that the planet Earth is in the perfect position for it to be habitable, for it to be able to sustain life. And so while naturalists want to go ahead and say, oh, it's just law of probability, we look at this as evidence for a purposeful creation. And we could go on and on about mathematics as well. Mathematics is timeless and it's transcendent. You see, 2 plus 2 has always been 4. I bet you never thought about that. Was 2 plus 2 4,000 years ago? What about 4,000 years ago? You see, 2 plus 2 has always been 4, always has been, always will. But what if you go to Egypt? What if you go to Chile or Argentina? Is 2 plus 2 still 4? Yeah, it doesn't matter what culture or what region you go. 2 plus 2 is always 4. Just going to show that the principles of mathematics have always been and always will be. That's not something that mankind has developed or created. It's actually something that mankind has discovered. There's a big difference because if mankind created it, then it would not be transcendent. It would differ from time to time or region to region, culture to culture. But the mere fact that mankind has discovered it shows that it was there before mankind's existence and that it had to have been placed there. But then we could even talk about the laws of logic with the principle of identity or the fact of the principle of the excluded middle or the law of non-contradiction. When you're talking about laws of logic and you're talking about reasoning and logical thought, you're looking at the fact that these are abstract thoughts and principles. If everything we have and we know of came from a naturalistic world or just material, there's no way that abstract or thought or laws of logic and reasoning could have evolved. 
it goes back to one of my favorite quotes that Frank Turek has. Is the question, did matter create mind or did mind create matter? You see, there's no way that matter can create mind. But there's a logical, rational reasoning on how mind can create matter because we see that in day-to-day life. A painting was created, a matter created painting by the mind of the painter. And so you see how matter was created by the mind. But a painting cannot create the painter. So... There are many evidences that provide reasonable conclusions that there is a God. We just need to be able to find out what they are. This espresso coffee is pretty good. So, you're probably asking the question, if the evidence is so compelling, why don't more people subscribe to the fact that God exists and God is very reasonable and rational and more people become theists or at least deists? Well, it's because of two words. Rescuing devices. Rescuing devices. And I don't know who coined it. I've heard Dr. Jason Lau use it plenty of times. And that's where I heard of it before. But basically a rescuing device is is simply an explanation that attempts to uh, explain away the necessity of God as a catalyst for anything. For instance, fractals in nature. Whether you're talking about the fern or you're talking about the trees or the snowflakes. Though I haven't come across a very good explanation for it, there have been a varying uh, thoughts as far as fractals in nature, but one of the silliness ones was the fact it's due to bacteria. Bacteria causes the fractals we see, the self-repeating patterns within nature, whether it's the ferns, the snowflakes, the trees, whatever the case is. Even though it doesn't account for the fractals found within river deltas, And it doesn't account for the perfection in the self-repeating patterns. Because if it was simply bacteria, two ferns would be totally different because it would be chaos. It would be randomness. You see, they have rescuing devices when you're looking at the fine-tuning or the anthropic principle or the Goldilocks zone in the perfect habitable planet. They just enter in the law of probability. Well, out of all the, the planets out there, out of the entire universe, surely there's going to be at least one that is in the right location to sustain life. And then as far as the caterpillars concern, uh, concerned with that miraculous uh, information that was encoded into itself, and it's not just caterpillars, it's even seeds, but we're not going to talk about that here. But seeds have programmed information inside of it to tell it when to sprout up and to root down. Crazy. But caterpillars, when they're going through their cocoon and their chrysalis process, rather than saying, oh, that's that's very interesting how there's a lot of information built in and in that it knows not only how, but when to break itself down and to rebuild itself. They say, no, 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 no. That wasn't because of a, a designer. That was because of million years of evolutionary process that through trial and error, it finally fixed itself and figured it out. You see, there are rescuing devices for all these areas, but they're not always found. For instance, there's not a rescuing device as far as the consciousness, as far as how do we think? How how does one person uh, look at a painting and say that's beautiful, but another one says it's not beautiful? The abstract thought process, some things there is no rescuing device for. And when that's the case, the naturalist and the atheist will always say, well, we don't know yet, but science will eventually reveal it in the future. You see, because of rescuing devices, this apologetic may not be very successful. However, 
Uh, if you're talking to someone that's not in the academic circle, has not really studied a lot of these things, these areas can provide enough information for them to chew on and to meditate on and just really contemplate. You know, that is crazy. How does information get there from the Big Bang and singularity? You know, what about fractals in nature? Bacteria? No, that would cause chaos and randomness. How, how is it such perfection? What about the Fibonacci sequence? Man, this stuff is amazing. Now, if you're dealing with someone that's in an academia world, uh, it, it may not be successful. And let me bring up an idea, uh, not an idea, but let me bring up an example. For instance, the Oort cloud. I'm sure all of us, well, maybe not all of us have heard of the Oort cloud, but the Oort cloud. You see, comets are a problem for somebody that believes in an old universe and an old Earth. Because from scientific evidence and reasoning, Comets aren't built and designed to last for millions and millions of years. I believe the longest comet is like tens and thousands of years, possibly. Uh, it's because it's basically a ball of ice. Uh, it's just a ball of ice, and you see the tail of the comet when it's passing around the Earth, orbiting the Earth, because the tail is the ice that's melting off of the comet. You see, because comets aren't supposed to last millions of years, they have discovered, or no, they haven't discovered, they've actually uh, built what's called the Oort cloud. They hypothesize, you can even go to NASA's website and a lot of other websites, that it's a predicted space at the edge of the solar system. It's not observed. They clearly identify it. It's not even scientifically, scientifically proven or shown or tested. It's just hypothesized and predicted that it's out there at the edge of the solar system, which actually creates comets. It actually spits out comets. It's a comet-making machine. So, like I said, if you're in the academic circle or talking to somebody that is, uh, evidential apologetics may not be very successful for them because they're going to come up with all these different rescuing devices. And just like the Oort Cloud is a perfect example of their hypocrisy and the presuppositions they hold to go ahead and really re try to refute any evidence that one might have for God's existence. So how do we use evidential apologetics? If we understand fractals and the transcendence of, of uh, mathematics, we look at the caterpillar, how do we actually use that? You see, we don't use this just to show uh, the need for God, because if we just take them from atheism to agnostic, we haven't really done them any favors. Yeah, we may have gotten them one step closer to Christ or to Jehovah, but they're still there and still needing salvation. So we must get them from that deistic, that agnostic area into theism and Christianity. You see, we got to use evidence to point to the reason for God's existence and then point them to the Christian God being the best rational existence there is. You see, it's there's great launching pads you can use to get into evidential apologetics. I imagine that whenever you're out in public, just, just do this for me, okay? When you're out in public, see how many people have wristwatches on. See how many people are wearing hats. See how many people are wearing shoes. You see, you see someone wearing a watch or a hat or shoes, and you can just, if you're sitting on a plane and you're going to wherever you're going, hopefully not Atlanta because that airport is horrendous, or Chicago or Dallas-Fort Worth, whatever the case is, but if you're sitting next to him and you see him wearing like a watch or whatever, be like, hmm, he's like, excuse me, sir, ma'am, have you ever thought about the watch's purpose? Does it have purpose? Is it, what was the creator's idea when 
someone designed a watch. Oh, yeah, purpose to let you know what time it is and yada, yada, yada. I was like, that's fascinating. You know, so would you imagine that everything that we see has a purpose behind it? There's a cause for it to be in existence. Yeah, you know, whether my hat, my shoes, my clothes, this airplane, whatever the case is. You know, that's fascinating. Have you ever thought of the the purpose of the universe? Or have you ever thought of your purpose and how you came here? Because if we see a wristwatch has a purpose and as a designer, then would we naturally assume that you and I have a purpose and a creator and that the universe has a purpose and a creator as well? You see, we could take everyday objects and everyday uh, information and, and turn it to a spiritual conversation just by getting them to think and engage in conversational apologetics. So I would encourage you just... When you're out and about in public, see how many people have these watches, hats, shoes, whatever the case is, cars. And then that could be a good launching pad to just talk to them about the evidences for God's existence, namely seen through cosmological argument on everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, or the same thing. The wristwatch began to exist, therefore the wristwatch has a cause, or the hat began to exist, therefore has a cause, or whatever the case is. You see, that's evidential apologetics, using evidence around us or in scripture to give reasons to believe God's existence. Remember, the goal is not just to leave them with the consideration of a God, but rather to transition to uh, have them contemplate the God, the Christian God. You see, we can start with fractals, the cyclic process of nature as far as oxygen and carbon dioxide. We could talk about the transition into the empty tomb and, and just the physical resurrection. But we should always finish uh, or think about finishing with the famous quote by C.S. Lewis that Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar and he never did what he said he could do and he's still in that tomb. He's either a lunatic and he really thought he could. Or a matter of fact, he's Lord and he really did do what he said he could do. And he is Lord and Savior of mankind. You see... The final episode in this podcast is going to be talking about presuppositional apologetics, which I believe is really considered the strongest, although I use all of them, and I'm sure we all use all of them at some point in time. So each method, whether it's experiential, evidential, or presuppositional, is definitely effective. And the Holy Spirit's going to use either of these methods if we're just willing and obedient and we have the heart and the love and the motivation to allow people to see their need for God and their need for a Savior. Remember, your success and your failure is not predicated on their receptivity to the gospel or their receptivity to the contemplation of whether God exists or not. Your success and failure is simply predicated on the fact of your obedience to do what God and Jesus had told us to do, to tell. And so let us remember that when we're going out throughout our daily lives to pray for opportunities, pray for moments, pray for open eyes so that we can just tell people about the reason why we believe in God, trust in Jesus Christ, and love others. So I hope hope you liked it. Uh, this is the episode on Evidential Apologetics. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Go ahead and share this podcast out with those people that you know. And until next time, I thank you for listening. God bless. Mm-hmm.